with some sample size of one and actual data of one, Ben Golliver and I start to break down what we've seen so far in the NBA. Let's talk, start with some of the headline games. We'll actually go back to the opening night since I know you were there for Lakers Clippers. But let's start last night. Philadelphia thumps Boston 107-93. How surprised were you at what a manhandling this was? I wasn't super surprised, but I do think the, the game had a little bit for the optimists and the pessimists alike. You know, it started a little bit uglier from Philadelphia's side. The offense, uh, offense wasn't necessarily clicking. Uh, I thought Boston at times had better energy and, and spark. Uh, but, you know, as it unfolded, I, I think Philadelphia's pretty clear talent advantage won out. They were able to, uh, you know, exert their matchup advantages. I mean, to me, I don't know how you feel about Boston but I'm still pretty skeptical of what Boston's trying to do with this group. Um, you know, I understand that they feel like they've got their wings locked in, you know, paying Jalen Brown. And then obviously, you know, building around Jason Tatum, uh, you know, who was decent uh, in his opening debut. But uh, to me, I, I look at this roster. I don't see a lot of like long-term really impressive pieces from them. I just think their ceiling is a lot lower than we've been accustomed to these last couple of years. It's interesting. I, I actually like them uh, a little bit. And, but I, you know, it's interesting to me that they couldn't score again tonight. Now, maybe Philadelphia is going to be historically as good defensively as some people have projected them to be. But it's, you know, they were not a good offensive team last year with a fabulous point guard in Kyrie Irving. And so for them to have another bad offensive game, I, I, maybe Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, you know, aren't guys that make you good offensive teams yet. Yeah, you know, you, you kind of wonder sometimes, like, you get the big contract, right? So the relief is there, the comfort is there, you know, like, oh, my organization, trust me. Uh, he goes out eight points, three of six shooting, you know, no offensive rebounds, no assists, and, you know, minus 12. And it's like, all right, we just paid $115 million for this. I mean, certainly that's not what Celtics fans, I think, were hoping for uh, in their first performance. And then I also think, um, you know, we've seen some different guys on new teams get off to, you know, somewhat, you know, shaky starts around the league. And Kemba Walker was in that mix, too. I mean, he shot four of 18 from the field, just didn't have it going. I don't think that's going to be his norm. So I think a lot of the, uh, you know, the the steadiness on the offensive front uh, is going to have to come from those two guys. You know, I certainly have a lot more uh, faith in Kemba delivering that than, you know, say Jalen Brown. I, I mean, I understand the people who want to compare him to a player like Jimmy Butler and say, look, they had very similar third-year stats. Uh, you know, a breakout could be coming. Just wait for him to kind of, you know, fill into his role. I uh, have more oxygen now that uh, Kyrie's in Brooklyn and everything else. I just don't think he's got, uh, you know, that pop to his offensive game. I think he's just kind of a limited offensive player, and they need him. Uh, there's no question. You saw it on opening night, and he just wasn't ready for the moment. So in what order do you think Terry Rozier 2 for 10, Kemba Walker 4 for 18, Mike Conley with the worst shooting night of his career, one for 16. Um, and uh, Ricky Rubio is four or 12. Hard to determine whether it's a bad game or just a game. Uh, do you think those three guys get on a conference call uh, to chat with each other about their opening night experiences? Well, I think you and I should get on a conference call and agree to just wipe the slate on all of them, right? I mean, I think it was a pretty weird opening night just around the league like even a place like portland right where they always bring it at their home opener it's like you just take it to the bank like death taxes and blazers fans being just so rowdy and the team rising to the moment and they were like pretty strangely flat down the stretch of that game didn't have it they wind up losing at home uh just kind of in almost demoralizing fashion if you will so 
Um, you know, I think there's some people who are still trying to get their sea legs around the league. It's not just the point guards we want to pick on. And uh, I think that, you know, people who want to say, you know, caution is in order here through the first 48 hours of the regular season are probably right. Well, here's what's interesting. I was looking at cleaning the glass numbers. Nine teams, so there are 22 teams played. Nine of them were a point of possession or below. Last year, the average was 1.1 points per possession. Like, to, it, you, if you go under a point of possession, you lose something. I've done the research because I tried to show the value of defense is the same as value of offense. And if you're below a point of possession, one, it doesn't happen very often. And two, you lose like 90% of the time. And Memphis, Washington, Sacramento, Cleveland, Orlando, Boston, Portland, Utah, and Oklahoma City tonight all were below one point of possession. Offense is supposed to be ahead of defense. That is not the case right now. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of teams in that group who we can probably agree are just hopeless, right? Like, I mean, Cleveland, they're going to be underwater all year long. I mean, I don't see how they get out of that. I think Oklahoma City, I mean, you were there. You probably have a better feel for that one. But I think they're going to be, you know, in that same ball uh, ballpark, you know, all year long where they're just kind of struggling to get whatever they can. Uh, there's just too many guys in their lineups who are bringing basically nothing to the table. And I think they're just over-reliant uh, on guys like Chris Paul and Danilo Gallinari, who are good offensive players uh, and maybe even arguably very good offensive players, but not great offensive players and, and certainly, you know, better uh, with improved talent around them. So, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure, you know, like for Portland, for example, they should be better than they were offensively. I thought that they underperformed. Uh, their shooting was way off from outside. You know, the three, four, five position for them is all brand new. So I do think we can probably attribute uh, in some of these teams cases, uh, you know, their uh, below average offensive starts to continuity, a lack of continuity to a lot of new pieces and just sort of a feel out process here early on. Uh, what impressed you the most in going back to that Philadelphia game? What impressed you the most about the Sixers? I thought Brent Brown's quote afterward about kind of where Ben Simmons is as a player but what was what jumped out to you about uh, about that game? I thought he was, you know, arguably the dominant force in that game. I mean, I think that you know, one guy there, rookie Thibault, is getting a lot of buzz. I mean, he is active, uh, you know, turnovers. He had some foul trouble early, but I think you know, from the standpoint of like you know, these division rivals, maybe who are going to be eyeing each other for playoff matchups and things like that. I mean, to me, from the benches on both teams, he probably jumped more than uh, you know anyone from Boston's bench necessarily. Uh, but yeah, Simmons, uh, he was kind of all over the place. He gained steam as the, as the game went on. I, I still think it's an unresolved question. Like how great is his fit with Embiid? And then how great is his fit with their lack of sort of perimeter shooting? And as I mentioned earlier, like they eased into it, you know, offensively early, it was kind of a struggle. Uh, you know, it was kind of crowded and, and cramped and that's what he usually is at his worst, but they opened things up as the game went on. Uh, he was able to you know, make a pretty spectacular finish kind of, uh, you know, running the break a little bit and then just doing the orchestration stuff that he could do offensively. You know, I always kind of refer to basketball Twitter as like a funhouse mirror for Ben Simmons. You know, it distorts his obvious weakness, which is his, you know, fear of outside shooting and it tends to underrate or underplay uh, his many strengths. And he's very, very good in a lot of important aspects of basketball. I think you saw that on opening night. Certainly he outplayed Boston's younger wings, uh, you know, by a a wide margin. I know Simmons is weird because he had the year where he was off. But there's a misnomer that players who have great first years in the league are supposed to have better second years. That actually doesn't happen. Players who have great first years have similar to equal 
second years, and then they make a jump in their second to third year. Players like De'Aaron Fox, who are terrible in year one, get better from year one to year two. But players that are good in year one don't actually make that jump. So the jump for Ben Simmons, the jump for Donovan Mitchell is now. Both of them showed it tonight. Well, I thought... uh... You know, Utah had a really strange game. I mean, their offense, uh, you know, of course, we talked about Conley, you know, shooting very poorly. But I thought that, you know, the offseason moves that they made to create the spacing around Mitchell and and to uh, create even space around Conley, it showed through. You know, they did not shoot the ball that well from outside, but they were getting a lot of really clean, wide-open three-pointers late in that game. And then Mitchell was just dancing in space basically all night. He had a couple highlights going all the way to the rim, uh, you know, spins and reverses. Uh, but also, you know, there's a pull-up jumper where there's no hand in his face at 15 feet. That's a pretty good shot for him. Uh, he was able to get it, uh, you know, not having to worry about anyone cheating over to try to contest or anything like that. So, uh, you know, I, I think that, you know, Quinn Snyder's probably, <laughs> uh, it's safe to say, hoping for a more explosive, uh, you know, offense in future games. But the quality of shots that they were generating were, were very good. Um, and to me, you know, Mitchell is is benefiting from, uh, you know, those upgrades that we expected, you know, from the summer, whether it's Bogdanovich or, or Conley himself. Dig a little deeper into Portland, Denver. We'll touch on Kyrie's 50 and other things with the Washington Post. Ben Golliver, as we continue, Peloton is offering a limited time offer. Get $100 off accessories when you purchase the Peloton bike and get a great cardio workout at home. Go to onepeloton.com and use the promo code LOCKED to get started. When you're done with Locked On NBA Today, two other national shows for you. Rejecting the screen with Noah Kozlov and Adam Stanko have Ryan Rosillo as their guest for you. And then Hollinger and Duncan will launch for you every Monday. Episode one is still up there. All right, let's go to Portland, Denver, which is, I think, you know, ESPN didn't kid around with the games they grabbed tonight. Um, Portland, Denver wins this one 100 to uh, 108. Uh, or 108-100, and they really, they outshot Portland. I think they had, what, 10 or more threes in that game. You don't win very often when that happens, when someone hits. Uh, what was your takeaway from where Denver is, um, who very well may be the number one seed in the West by the time the year's done? What's, what was your takeaway on this one? Well, Log, I'd suggest go back and watch. I know you were busy watching the Jazz game. This was just such a weird game. It's almost worth just, like, kind of uh, rubbernecking and going back and watching this one. First of all, Jokic gets into obscene foul trouble right off the gate. He is not moving well. He looks heavy. And I actually think Paul Millsap, I don't know if he's still working his way into shape, but he looked like he was maybe a quarter step to a half half step slow too. So usually you're thinking, you know, Portland Rockets environment, uh, you know, Denver's front court guys maybe not quite uh, being where they need to be in, uh, you know, late October. That should be a a slam dunk for Portland. But it just wasn't that. You mentioned the three-point shooting. Uh, You know, Denver – uh, had a very streaky night uh, from Jamal Murray, but he stepped it up a little bit when he needed to late. And then Jokic himself actually banged back-to-back three-pointers to kind of uh, you know put that game away late. And it was fascinating because from Portland's side, there was a lot of excitement because Hassan Whiteside puts up 16 points, 19 rebounds. Uh, you know, he's like, you know, kind of holding Jokic in check to a certain degree. Jokic was dealing with severe foul trouble. So there was just a lot of times he wasn't out there. But in the critical parts of this game, when Jokic is shooting those two three-pointers, Whiteside is slow to cover the ground to get out there to contest one. He actually got away with a foul. He, it was a late close. Uh, they didn't call it. But then the next one, 
Uh, Jokic finds himself open in the corner, and Whiteside just can't get out there. So it was a classic situation where the people who love Whiteside's uh, you know, box score numbers are saying, oh, what a great debut from Whiteside. And the people who have been pointing to his uh, plus-minus and impact mm-hmm. stats for years uh, can say, you know what, that's fine. But uh, in winning time, he was the weakest link, and ultimately Terry Stotts actually had to pull him off the court in the, in the closing minutes to go a little bit smaller. So uh, I think when you're looking kind of big-picture takeaways for Denver – uh, they won a game they probably uh, you know, didn't have any business winning, and that's what really good teams do. Uh, and then from Portland's side, the, off- the concerns about you know, losing their starting wings and then trying to find a way to replace Nurkic with Whiteside, I think those concerns were uh, you know, raised pretty obviously uh, in game one. Portland and my numbers came out terribly. We talked about that in a previous podcast and it showed kind of tonight. I think this is... If Portland's good this year, this is just the ultimate testament to Dame and Terry Stotts. Like, if if this team actually turns out to be, you know, beyond the eighth seed or, you know, sixth seed or something as a lot of people projected them, maybe even just playoff team, uh, I think it's a it's a tribute to those two guys because I, I, I don't actually see this team coming together very well. Their bench is rough, man. I mean, even they're starting three, four, five. I don't like those guys. I mean, they started uh, Rodney Hood. Zach Collins and Hassan Whiteside. And to me, if you're looking in terms of fit uh, with the starting guards, Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum, I think all three of those guys are downgrades from the people they had last year. Mo Harkless, Al Farouk Aminu, and then, of course, Nurkic in the middle. And guys like Harkless and Aminu were punching bags, I think, for Blazers fans because they weren't great shooters. Uh, they might have been a little bit inconsistent night to night. But the things that they did do, you know, generally providing plus defense, and staying out of the way and at least camping in the corners and drawing defenders away. And what you saw from Portland's offense late, they just had trouble getting good shots. And anytime it wasn't Damian Lillard shooting it, it got ugly. I mean, Zach Collins had an air ball in a very key moment. Um, I believe it was, uh, I believe it was hood who took a jumper uh, late that missed pretty badly. And you can even see Denver's, uh, you know, defense, like purposefully not rotating to allow certain guys open looks, just kind of hoping that they would take the shot. Um, and it worked, uh, and you know it, it didn't help that C.J. McCollum just kind of had an off night. I think ultimately Portland's winning formula, uh, as it has for years, relies on both Damian Lillard and C.J. McCollum bringing a lot of offense to the table. They only got offense from Lillard uh, in game one, and, and that proved fatal. Speaking of offense, Kyrie Irving dropped 50. Welcome to Brooklyn. They did lose, but he dropped 50. It was the good, the bad, and the ugly, frankly. I mean, uh, from from Kyrie, it's like, okay, you know, here's my welcome moment. He's going off. But then I don't know if you saw the uh, the critical play where he basically wants the ISO to close out uh, in overtime. No screens. He's dribbling the clock down. And I think in that situation, even though Kyrie had been red hot and kind of, you know, carrying the offense all night long, I think Ryan Saunders and the Timberwolves live with that. They have Josh Kogi, uh, I think our, their, their best on-ball defender, uh, on Kyrie, realizing that he's putting the shot up no matter what, so you're making his defensive job a little bit easier. Kyrie goes into the spin move, kind of loses his balance. He's able to you know, keep his dribble alive somehow. It's a real magical act, uh, but he couldn't get the jumper to fall, and they wind up losing. Uh, the one thing uh, I wanted to run by you from the Minnesota game, and I know people like to do the one game overreactions, but Andrew Wiggins was a minus 26 in 36 minutes in a game they win in overtime 21 points on 27 shots he does nothing defensively no assists um he doesn't hit a three-pointer 
And I guess it's already, to me, time to set the over-under on when do you, you move him to the bench? You know, when do you put a guy like Kogi in the starting lineup in his spot? I think if you've got Towns, who we know is, you know, the offensive kind of monster for them, and you're surrounding him with guys like Covington and Okogi, I think that's just a better lineup. Uh, and sure, you might be sacrificing a little bit of scoring power. It might be an ego boost to a guy like Wiggins. But if I'm Minnesota, I'm at the point where it's like, look, Andrew, if you're going to be listless, if you're going to be getting beat on defense you know, in the crunch time, if you're going to be an inefficient scorer and you're going to be, uh, you know, uh, a, a, a black hole with the basketball, you know, it goes in, doesn't come out. To me, that sounds like a sixth man. That doesn't sound like a starter, and I would be thinking about that change already. Well, it'll be interesting. New front office, and so do they have this Ryan Saunders get the A-OK from upstairs to do it because, you know, 23 two-point shots is not the way they want to play anymore. <laughs> right. And Well, one thing I'd say about Garrison Rosas, if you parse his quotes, like, you know, in the previous regime, it was always Carl and Andrew, right? Like, they, they, they hyped both those guys up, you know, pretty, uh, you know, relentlessly, or at least spoke of them in kind of similar terms. When he talks about Towns, Garrison Rosas, it's a top 10 player, right? He's the franchise building block. When he talks about Wiggins, he uses different words, different terminology, and not nearly as much hype, right? And, and I think actually, you know, a little bit more about, hey, unfulfilled expectations. And so they may be telegraphing something there, but look, I understand he's getting the big contract. I understand he's a young player and you don't want to lose him. Uh, but I, I, I don't know. I, it was almost time for a reality check, like right out of the gate. And that's just not good enough. And I don't think that's their best lineup. And I think they have a really good option bringing a Kogi in. Um, and they just have a little bit of a different identity if, if they're using him instead of Wiggins. I just like it better. So I've thought this for a long time. It, it were, I actually was talking with someone once when talking about the Jazz. This was actually before Donovan emerged. Like I said that the Jazz should – if they were going to be gamble, the Timberwolves would be a better team if they had traded for Tabo Cephalosha, Jonas Jerebko, I don't remember who else we had, for Andrew Wiggins. In other words, go get four average players who use possessions at league average and just disperse them across those guys and get rid of um, this guy who's such a negative. I mean, only offensive player had a bigger negative impact than Andrew Wiggins last year was Russell Westbrook. Uh, and when you have Carl Anthony Towns, who had, like, I think was the, I read that was the fourth player in NBA history to have 36, 14, 11 field goals and seven threes in a game. Like, he's doing stuff that has not been done. You don't want another high usage, another high usage player who's negative is death. Like, it's really the worst possible thing you can have. If you have a high usage player, there's no need to have a below average possession user that's using a ton of possessions so i mean they they just bench andrew wiggins they're a better team yeah it's one of those things where so many teams if they have a really good scoring point guard who doesn't play defense then the the model immediately is like surround him with long wings interchangeable wings to kind of help with the defensive assignments and then have uh, a pick and roll partner for him but also defensive minded bigs I mean, that kind of almost goes back to the Derrick Rose days, but that's like a formula we've kind of seen time and time again uh, over the last, like, you know, six, seven, eight years. Um, it should be the same thing with Carl Anthony Towns. The guy is, uh, you know, becoming almost a playmaker in their offense as well. Incredibly, you know, scorer. He can create for himself. You can put him out there on the perimeter. He's comfortable out there. If you're trying to construct the ideal lineup around him, it's basically, to me, it's, it's the same philosophy. You want to have one other ball handler. To me, that's going to be Teague. And then you want three, three and D wings who are going to be willing to do all the dirty work, help him with the rebounding and, uh, you know, be as versatile as possible. 
And I just think at this point, you know, Wiggins, it's it's no three, no D. So what, what's he doing out there? We'll go backwards and then forwards and then the round mound of rebound when we continue with Ben Golliver here on Locked On NBA. Locked On NBA is your daily podcast, 30-minute bite size of what happened the night before and what to look ahead to. But I want to go back one more night. You were at Clippers-Lakers. The whole league was talking about it uh, afterwards. Lots of interesting comments. I think the general consensus was that people left thinking the Clippers are a lot better than the Lakers. What was your general consensus? You know, coming into that game, first of all, I picked the Clippers to win the title, and I have said I don't believe the Lakers are a a Tier A contender at this point. I just think that they're too thin and too reliant upon LeBron James and Anthony Davis. But the first, like, six minutes of that game is actually how I thought that game was going to go. I thought LeBron was going to come out. He has this whole China controversy. He hasn't played in a regular season game since March. I thought he was just going to try to have a vintage LeBron game, put his stamp on it, get Anthony Davis huge numbers, uh, you know, just basically gun all out for the win. And I thought somebody like Kawhi Leonard, you know, he hasn't uh, you know, played very much in the preseason. There's no Paul George out there. Uh, he starts off slow. And I'm thinking, all right, this is going exactly according to the script that I expected. But what you saw was uh, just significantly better depth uh, from the Clippers side. And then you also saw just point blank Kawhi Leonard outplaying LeBron James. Uh, LeBron looked tired, I thought, as the game went on. Uh, there was a lot of turnovers from him. There was some more missed uh, layups and bunnies, which we saw during the preseason. I don't know if you want to chalk that up to uh, fatigue, uh, possibly aging, uh, but it's certainly something that we haven't been that used to seeing from LeBron. And then with Kawhi, it was just total mastery. I mean, no urgency whatsoever, getting to his spots, you know, taking advantage of mismatches, just killing Kentavious Caldwell-Pope all night. Uh, and the Clippers have a really good buzz about their team. I mean, they have... For all of last season, it seems like they've integrated the superstar and his personality, you know, just fine. Um, the defensive effort was excellent. They're flying around all over the court, deflections, getting key loose ball rebounds late in the game to extend possessions. Uh, and I thought, you know, for the Clippers, uh, you, you saw Patrick Beverly kind of pounding his chest at the end of that game. And that's how the whole organization, I'm sure, felt. You know, they take this rivalry, rivalry thing pretty seriously. Uh, and it was a, a convincing you know, very strong victory. Uh, and then they had Paul George here at some point, which, you know, the question I kept asking everybody in the offseason was, are they be- the best team by just that they're better than everyone else or are they dramatically better than everyone else, that they're the Golden State S tier above everyone else? Where do you sit on that? I, I, it, I wouldn't go that far. I don't think there's a super team in the league, but I think that they're the best team one to ten. And they actually have a surprising number of looks. You know, I think that it's easier to um, – you know, overlook uh, like a guy like Montrezl Harrell. I think he's just generally underrated, but they also have Jermichael Green at that four spot who can give them some pretty good minutes. A guy like Mo Harkless, uh, maybe he's in a little bit over his head when he's starting for Portland, uh, but as a reserve big minute wing uh, where he doesn't have that many responsibilities because Kawhi and Paul George are going to be taking care of most of it or Lou Williams as a ball handler. Uh, he's a really, really nice piece. Uh, you know, their X factor to me is Shamit. If Shamit plays well and hits his three-pointers, I think they're very, very difficult to, to stop. Uh, and you know, he looked uh, pretty good on opening night as well. So um, you know, I, I think that their roster was built meticulously. Um, of course, they had you know, some, some big-time help uh, <laughs> with Kawhi Leonard uh, you know, basically saying, get me Paul George or else. Uh, but the other pieces around them fit very well. 
Uh, they're super deep, and they've they've been conditioned to you know buy into a team first environment, and I think that really matters. You know, I think that the role definition for this group it's very very clear. A few other highlights from last night before we move on, uh, and I'll let Ben comment on it if he wants to. But Dejounte Murray in his return had eighteen points, eight rebounds, and six assists, so that's pretty cool. Uh, Laurie Markkinen, who's my breakout player of the year, had thirty five points and seventeen rebounds, and I suspect we're going to see something like that from him with some regularity. Though it was against Charlotte, so that makes it a little bit easier. Um, rookies across the board actually were surprisingly better uh, in a draft class that most people kind of dismissed. Um, Four things, and then Luka Doncic had 34 points, eight rebounds, or nine rebounds, and three assists. Chris Dapps had 23. Any comment on those before we jump ahead to what we're seeing tomorrow uh, tonight? Uh, no, I mean Murray uh, was a, a breath of fresh air for San Antonio. Had some big plays late in that game. They actually had to come back against New York. And the other guy who I would add to your list is actually Markel Fultz. 12 points and six assists off the bench for Orlando. Uh, a win over Cleveland. So you're not necessarily writing home about that. It was at home. Uh, but, you know, for him, you know, 12 points, you know, that's uh, that's not bad at all. I mean, expectations have plunged, so it, it's definitely newsworthy. Not sure. Gordon Hayward's 25-5 and five might be worth mentioning as well uh, on the comeback trail, depending on whatever you think of last year. We're, tonight, uh, tonight we got two Bucks and the Rockets and Clippers and Warriors. Bucks and Rockets is fascinating to me because the Bucks, I actually think the un- – the most untalked about signing in the offseason was Robin Lopez. The Bucks last year only allowed 30% of shots at the rim. I think they could be at like 27% this year with two, those two seven-footers. Uh, and then that gets even more interesting because of who they're playing, the Rockets, and where does, how does Russell Westbrook deal if he can't get to the rim. So what's your, what are you watching for, particularly in the Rockets tonight? Um, well, I'm watching the Westbrook and Harden dynamic, uh, you know, with uh, you know, very eagle eyes. You know, I think that it's one of the biggest storylines around the year, uh, just w- with the new partnership. Uh, you look at the track record of their offenses year after year. Harden has had top five efficient offenses year after year. Westbrook's had kind of middling, you know, 15th or 18th ranked offenses, unless, you know, Kevin Durant was there, uh, you know, really going nuts. And so, uh, to me, it's, you know, does Houston incorporate Westbrook into their scheme and it works, or does Westbrook kind of corrupt what they've been doing uh, and almost like tie one of uh, James's hands behind his back? Uh, you know, I'm more skeptical, I think, than a lot of people in terms of how this will work, both in the playoffs and during the regular season. And I also think that they're a team that probably needs to make a statement here more than almost any other team early on. And they got a real tough draw on the schedule because they're coming off this whole China fiasco the owner's been in the headlines constantly. Daryl Morey's hiding because of the, the Hong Kong tweet. Uh, you know, of course, everyone's, you know, there's a large segment of basketball uh, fans who are sort of rooting for the Westbrook and Harden thing not to work because it, it could blow up spectacularly. And then throw on top of all that, they, they had an injury with Gerald Green. Um, and, you know, I have some questions just about their depth in terms of, you know, are these guys really, uh, you know, the same, you know, team that they've been uh, in previous years. So, uh, that's just a lot to bring into an opening night game. But, of course, Harden's such a scintillating talent. You know, he could put everybody on his back and just go do it. Uh, from Milwaukee's side, they had a fantastic preseason. I mean, the numbers were incredible. You mentioned kind of the arms race. It's, it felt like uh, both Milwaukee and Philly, it was like who could get bigger? And then, you know, what, what's the countermeasure? Okay, let's get even bigger. And then what's the counter to that? Let's go bigger again. Uh, and so that would be funny to play out. But, uh, you know, Giannis and, and Harden have been chirping a little bit back and forth, and I imagine Giannis will, will go out there and, and try to make a statement too. Talking to Oklahoma people tonight, a little skepticism on that, a little more skepticism from that side. 
that that they that the guys are great friends, everybody buys it, but if it goes wrong, they just that was it. Like it's gonna be all good as long as it's smooth sailing, but seasons don't have smooth sailing. So I thought that was interesting. Well, look, I mean, the Oklahoma side knows better than anyone how much they cater to Westbrook. I mean, they bent over backwards to him on the court, off the court, with the media, everywhere else. And I understand you do that in, in a smaller market with a star of that magnitude. That's how it goes in the NBA. That's just a fact of life. But it's not Westbrook's show at Houston at all. And that's a big adjustment to go from being the guy who has the commercial that says, now I do what I want, and he did what he wanted for basically three straight years, uh, to trying to fit in around James Harden, who knows that he's the franchise player. He's gotten the contract extensions multiple times. He's carried them. His way works a lot better than Westbrook's way. It's a big adjustment, and that's part of the reason why I'm skeptical. All right, you spent some time with Charles Barkley today, the TNT media. What was what was how was how was the old round mound of rebound? Well, I, I just have so much respect for him as a take, uh, take artist. You know, I mean, he just has opinions on everything. You know, he said that he had to lose 50 pounds when he came to the NBA, so he was sort of recommending maybe a similar approach for Zion Williamson. Uh, he was accusing the Lakers and Clippers of tampering this summer. I mean, he was really going off every direction. But to me, the headline statement from him was just a very matter-of-fact declaration that he thinks Kawhi Leonard is just now a better player than LeBron James, period. He thinks he's a better scorer. He thinks he's a better defensive player. Everybody would agree with that, and he has been uh, for years and years. But he also said he thinks that Kawhi now imposes his will on a game. In other words, he kind of puts a stamp on the action uh, more effectively, more consistently than LeBron does. And, you know, LeBron's been talked about as the best player in the league, uh, you know, at least seven, eight, nine years now. And to have a voice, I think, as loud and as you know, respected or at least as visible uh, as Charles is to just kind of basically say, sorry, man, it's not your throne anymore. It's not your crown anymore. It's this guy over here, Kawhi. Uh, it, it made my uh, eyebrows go up a little bit, but maybe it shouldn't. I mean, maybe this is just a fact that we all need to accept at this point of LeBron's career at age 34. I don't know. Where do you come down on it? Uh, I mean, Kawhi's probably better than LeBron right now, but I'm not sure – what I think that means in a seven game series. We haven't seen it. Um, I don't think we're going to, I don't think they're, well, unless we, you know, unless they're one, eight, no, uh, maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe, wow. maybe it's one, four in the second round. Um, I mean, LeBron is showing every statistically, if you didn't see the name on it, you would say he's slowing down. And then when you put the numbers together, it's not, it's not normal for him to be able to play at all anymore. Not, not like not normal for him to not be good. It's not normal for him to be able to play at all. Like that's been my thought on LeBron. Like it has to come to an end at some point. Every indicator is there. And then when you start to look at all time minutes played in the history of the NBA and you look at who he's next to and remember what they were like in their final two or three years in their career. And then you had 10,000 playoff minutes. Like, it's ridiculous that he's on the floor right now. You know, what? yeah, no no doubt. One thing that Barkley added was that he started to realize late in his career that once the game started to become harder for him, once he, he felt like he was losing matchups that he normally would have won or to players who he didn't necessarily respect as much, uh, that's kind of when he realized that, you know, the end was coming. And that, you know, when you're 25, 26, the game just feels easy. And I think, you know, for a superstar player, when we watch them, it looks easy, right? 
And LeBron has made the game look easy for his entire career. I mean, going all the way back to high school, when most people watched him for the first time, it did feel to me in that opener, the game seemed just a little bit harder. And even at times during the preseason, same deal. I mean, of course there's going to be the highlight level passes that he can make and nobody else in the the world can make, but it's really kind of about comparing how easy is things for LeBron today versus how easy it was for him four years ago, or even a couple of years ago in that incredible finals against golden state, uh, you know, where he's scoring 50 plus points and kind of doing it all. And I do think the game looks a little bit more difficult for him than it did. I'm not writing him up. I'm not saying he's over the hill. I still think he's, you know, uh, an all NBA first team, you know, candidate type guy this year. Uh, But when we're trying to say who actually is the best player in basketball, and that's a title that these guys gun for. I mean, we know Kevin Durant was obsessed with that title for years, trying to take it from LeBron. Uh, You know, I think I'm actually on the same side as Charles Barkley right now. You know, I think Kawhi has, uh, has usurped LeBron. He'll have to prove it. Like you said, I mean, they'll have to go out there and make it farther than the Lakers in the playoffs and, and potentially win a title. I think for everybody to be ready to rally around it, uh, but if you're saying draw teams, which guy do you want right now? If they're both healthy, I would take Kawhi Leonard. All right, let me just back up what I said so people don't think I'm crazy. Here are the five players who LeBron has just passed in minutes played. Rem- don't remember them as the player. Remember them as what they were in their final year or two, right? Because that's what LeBron has just mm. passed. So he has played 2,000 more minutes than Joe Johnson. 1,200 more than Moses Malone. 1,000 more than Vince Carter. Like, Vince Carter, I love that he's still playing. It's great. It's cute. Like, he's a a 12-minute-a-night bench guy, right? Robert Parrish. Go ahead. Joe Johnson just got waived. Moses Malone is probably having easier minutes than LeBron, you know, because he's not running up and down the court handling the ball. And like you're saying with Vince Carter, I mean, those minutes are spread out over a long number of years. And again, he doesn't have the burden of trying to play quote unquote point guard and, uh, you know, facilitating the entire offense. And when you need a bucket late, the ball's in his hands. I mean, that hasn't been him for a long, long time. Robert Parrish and Paul Pierce. Paul Pierce for his final 1,500 minutes of his career, averaged four points a game and shot 37%. In the year prior to that, when he actually played 25 minutes a night for 2,000, he averaged 11 points a game. Like, it's incredible. The next five guys are Ray Allen, John Havlicek, Gary Payton, and Tim Duncan. Think about what they were like at the end of their careers. LeBron is, like, we're wondering if LeBron is the best player in the league still and anybody, and LeBron played 10,000 playoff minutes on top of this, it's, it's, it's the greatest testament to him as maybe the greatest player that's ever played the game that we're actually having the conversation. Yeah, the fact that we didn't have to really, you know, break it down whether he's mortal or not until he was 34 is pretty incredible. <laughs> right. You know, 34 and very, very well-traveled. But I guess to me... My respect factor for LeBron, like what you're describing, is there. I'm working through this mental process of, okay, he might be in a different chapter right now. And if he is, we need to be open-minded to that possibility. Right. And and frankly, the numbers reek it. Like, field goal percentage dropped three percentage points. His threes dropped three percentage points. His rim attempts, I think, were down a little bit. Like, every indicator, 55 games, like, every indicator says... Not to mention 
46,271 minutes plus 10,000 playoff minutes that like, okay, like something's happening here. Like it's right. Like that's that, that's yeah. like, it's all there. We just, it's a, you know, it's hard to believe because he's that great. That. Yeah, he's just built up so much credibility for so right. long. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, I'm just in this personal mental adjustment period where, you know, usually you go to a game and watch LeBron play and you figure that you know, he's going to take it over, find a way to solve it. And I think that, you know, there's going to be more times this year than really at any point of the last decade where he doesn't have the answers for one reason or another. I'll leave it this the, the late Tom Nasalki, who passed this last year, uh, was an ABA NBA coach of the year. And, uh, was assistant on the Milwaukee Bucks championship team, you know, long, long time NBA guy. He said, Hey, here's how it works. You come to the league, you get 80 nights out of your legs. And then the next night you get like 78 and then you get like 74 and it just starts to slip. And by the time you're done near the end, you're getting 40 nights, sometimes 35 nights out of your legs. And what the greatest players in the league know how to do is on the night where they have their legs, they'll still drop 35 or 37 or 40 because they got their legs that night and they can still let it run that way. But then, there's two. There's a lot more 16s and 18s and 22s than there ever used to be. On that note, I hear it. I... On that note, he's Ben Golliver. How do they get your newsletter at the Washington Post? Go to my Twitter page. I got a link that you can subscribe. It's real easy. Uh, just scroll down a little bit, find that link, uh, plug in your email. It's free. It drops every Monday. Uh, this past Monday, I wrote about the Raptors and and what they're going to be. Uh, you know, doing here, you know, adjusting from Kawhi Leonard's departure uh, and the topics change every week. So it's a nice mix, a little bit of everything. He's Ben Golliver. I'm David Locke. We'll be together on Thursdays. This is Locked on NBA. Now go listen to Rejecting the Screen with Noah Kozlov and Adam Stanko or your favorite team's NBA podcast.